0: Well, good morning, church, and scattered guests. It's really good to see people here. I mean, We've had people here, but it's good, it's good to see more people here. We're so looking forward to July the 5th. We have had our worship and praise band and our it's part of our orchestra every week, but to say the least, this group is much better looking than what I've been exposed to, so thank you for being here. And it's good to see our seniors. The only concern I have is that as I've surveyed our seniors, I don't know of anyone that's going to the Citadel in this group. Is there anyone? It's not too late. We can work with you. We can get you in. So let me know that. Well, today is Flag Day. June the 14th, 1777, the Second Continental Congress adopted the American flag as we know it, with more stars, but the 13 stripes and the blue background, And in 1916, Woodrow Wilson declared Flag Day to be part of our experience. And then in 1949, the House of Representatives made Flag Day an official holiday in America. It just so happens that today is Flag Day. I'm going to pray for our nation in a second, but I'm going to give you a brief historical background. So the flag represents, first of all, the white represents the commitment of our founding fathers to The pursuit of innocence and purity. The red represents the valor and courage and maybe the lifeblood that need to be given to preserve our freedoms. And the blue represented justice. And that's still a a, a wonderful standard. You pursue that which is right and good and you stand up with bravery and courage and you're counted and then you pursue justice. Um, Now, let me go back to the late... 1600s, 140-some years after the Reformation began, there was a statement made that became kind of a byword for the Reformation and would like this, the church reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. In other words, the church stands upon the Reformation doctrines that are part of the apostolic calling. And as we stand there, we are continually reforming ourselves by the power of the Spirit under the authority of the Bible. So as you, th- you think about that theologically, the reason that the, the, that was the, the byword is that we are never done with sin. And because we're never done with sin and because our hearts need the everyday moment of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Scripture, we need to be continually reforming under the Scripture. One of the leading reformers said that, that the Christian life is not total health, but it is the process of healing. It is not complete rest, it is the process of exercise. It, it is not uh, total rest, but it is refreshment. And then he said this, he says, we are not what we shall be, but we are being people who press toward it. So we're never done with sin, but we're going forward. So, So every church, every family, every individual needs to be In Christ, reformed and continually reforming. That's called growth in grace. That's called putting sin to death, which is what I'm going to talk about this morning. Every institution needs to be continually reforming under the general revelation of God. Every every academic department, every school, everything. So, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. So, so I'm going to pray for our, our country. In a time of crisis, in a time when we're aware that there are issues in our country, that there needs to be reform, but I am so thankful that I live in a land of liberty on this flag day. Stephen Ambrose, one of my favorite historians, he died a few years ago. He was born and raised in New Orleans and taught at Tulane in the University of New Orleans, wrote many books on World War II. His best-known book, those on Lewis and Clark, called Undaunted Courage, but Stephen Ambrose... had a little paragraph in a book about World War II that I read, and when I read it, I got teary-eyed, and and, and he said this. He said, "As, as the war was coming to a close in Europe, that the people of Germany fled to the West to surrender to the forces called the Allied Forces from Great Britain and chiefly the United States. Instead of waiting to be consumed by the Soviet Union. He said, because the people of Germany knew that when the Soviets came into your village, it meant death and destruction and executions and other things unmentionable. He says, but the people of Germany knew that when they encountered the American soldier, it almost universally meant candy, chewing gum, and cigarettes. He said, so they ran to the United States. I I just thought... That has been part of our legacy, and I want it to be more and more of our legacy during these days, people of compassion and kindness and love. And may we evidence that. So let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for our country. Thank you that you've taught us in Scripture, continue to pray for our leaders, to pray for those in authority, that they would govern wisely, And that we would have the ability to exercise our freedom of worship. So we do that now. We pray for our leaders. We pray that they would govern wisely. We pray, Lord, during this time of unrest that your church would speak words of truth and justice and mercy and compassion. I pray that we would embrace and understand what the Bible says repeatedly about being a peacemaker. Thank you, Jesus, that you said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And so we pray this day that you would preserve our nation in strength, that we would be men and women who say that every institution... Every family, every individual needs to be continually reforming, and as believers, we say continually reforming and being changed under the Word of God. So do that in our midst now by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Psalm 16, and this is a psalm that's called the Golden Psalm of of the Book of Psalms, and the psalmist tells us how to embrace and maintain happiness. And verse 11 is the end result of the psalm, where the psalmist writes, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thus says the scripture. So, the awakening of joy and the maintaining of joy. Last week, I dealt with the first three verses where the Bible says in verse one, he says, preserve me or guard me or empower me, O God, for I find refuge in you. Verse two is a statement of declaration regarding joy. He says, I will say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. So he says, I found the fountain of joy and happiness and delight in the Lord. And then verse 3 talks about the importance of the community of Christ and being with people who walk with the Lord. He says, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the excellent ones or the noble ones or the, or, or, or the honored ones in whom is all my delight. So that's, that's the foundation. And now he goes a, a step further. He talks about delight. The word delight is very important. It means my joy, my existential happiness. The, the word delight is used in Psalm 1, 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 37 delight yourself in the Lord. So we come to verse 4 through 6, which talks about the importance of walking in the way of happiness as we understand these things. Hear the Bible. It says, The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So two points. One is a combination of two and three, but two points. Number one, based upon this passage, the psalmist says, "The happiness in part is being a keen observer of history and human nature." Where he says this, he says, "The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Shall multiply. Shall grow exponentially. Their sorrows shall grow exponentially." In, in Proverbs chapter nine, there is this invitation to people, but this is how the writer of Proverbs couches it. He talks about wisdom, and then he says, she sent out this invitation. Verse 4 says, whoever is simple, simple, needs direction, let him turn in here to him who lacks sense. She says, come eat my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Verse 6 Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So so the 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 cry is to people who are who are simple, who who need insight, who need wisdom, who need discernment. So so I will never go hard for the Lord until I realize that's me. I'm I'm simple. I I lack sense. I need direction. I need the instruction of God. It's the, the observable. The same mere statement is made, though, by the woman folly. The last part of Proverbs 9, it says, She cries out with a loud voice. Verse 16, Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Verse 18, But he does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of the earth. Another, both people, the simple. So the observable data is that, that that I need direction. And then he says here, the sorrows of those who run after another god, whatever that god may be, will multiply. They'll, they'll, they'll multiply. And he says, I won't pour out their drink offerings or take their names upon my lips. Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse thirty-one, if you. Abide in my words, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free. Truth. Romans 8, verse 13 makes this statement in this grand discussion. Verse 13. If you live according to the Spirit, or according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will will live, die, flourish, death, prospering. So I read a book recently about the year 1920 and by David Pietruska, and it's a very good book. But in the book he talks about different presidents who are impacting the culture in 1920. He talks about the Republican ticket. And the Republican ticket in 1920 that won handily – was led by a man named Warren G. Harding from Ohio. And the vice president was a relatively unknown man from Vermont who was then the governor of Massachusetts named Calvin Coolidge. And as, as you, you look at history and you read their lives, two people could not be more different. Warren G. Harding was a very handsome man with no character, zero. No clear thinking. Fathered several children out of wedlock. Had a mistress while he was in the White House, and and history has unequivocally condemned him as a leader. He died two years into his term, and this unknown Calvin Coolidge became president. And Calvin Coolidge is universally respected by people on both sides of the historical spectrum, by everybody as being a man of integrity. And faithfulness, a man whose yes was yes and his no was no. He was one of my four favorite presidents. I love Calvin Coolidge. And the ramifications of his life and, and and the aftermath of the way he lived has incredible, incredible statements in our history. And I just thought, never have two people ever been joined that were more different. One followed folly, one followed wisdom. Now, I thought about a story in the book of 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, we're introduced to the kings of Judah. The kingdom has split. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And there is a king named Jehoshaphat. Godly Jehoshaphat. He reigned for 25 years, instituted reform, was, was universally loved and, and, and affirmed in the kingdom. And he dies, and his son. Uh, comes to power. His son's name is Jehoram. Jehoram is 32 when he becomes king and he reigns for eight years. And Jehoram has a son, the grandson of Jehoshaphat, who who is uh, 14 years old when his granddaddy dies. So he grew up watching his granddaddy. And after his granddaddy dies and his daddy becomes king, he walked down the street of Jerusalem. People say, hey man, your granddad was great, Jehoshaphat. Godly guy, Let us in reforms. Great. Let me tell you about Ahaziah's dad, Jehoram. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, became king, and the Bible says in Second Chronicles twenty-one that he was king for a while. And after he was king for a while and consolidated his kingdom, he took his six brothers and he had them murdered, and he had the princes of Judah murdered, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he had an ungodly wife who led him into sin. And he had really ungodly advisors. So here's, here's a lesson. Marry well and make sure you listen to the right people. Jehoram did not do that. And so in the middle of his reign, there is a letter sent by this guy named Elijah. And Elijah says to Jehoram, I'll just read the letter. It's only three verses. He sends this letter and he says, thus says the Lord God Jehovah, the God of David, your father, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of your granddaddy Asa, but you've walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom at the house of Ahab and led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed your brothers and your father's house who were better men than you are. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your pe- people and upon yourself and your wives and your children and your possessions, and you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the, the, the disease day by day, close quote. And that's quite a letter. So, so for two years after this, every day, he suffered in agony, the Bible says, until eventually he just he just dies. He dies. And so there you are now, this grandson is 22. So he's got two paths. The path of granddaddy Jehoshaphat that honors God and receives a blessing of God and flourishes under the hand of God or, or the way of his dad, where he has an ungodly wife and he has bowel disease and he sees everything taken from him. So you're, you're, you're now, you're, you're, you're 22 and you're now the king to me. It's a pretty easy decision. Guess what he chooses to do? Goes his dad's way. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet let me tell you, I've seen it happen time after time after time after time after time. We need to desperately pray that the Holy Spirit of God changes our hearts and our inclinations so that we will do and go the right way. That's why verse 1, preserve us, O God. God, for in you I find my refuge. Here's a quote by John Calvin regarding the way we go, the way we should go. Calvin says this. He says, life is an inexplicable labyrinth. Unless we are conducted into it by the word of God, so that it is, so it is better to limp along this path than to dash with all speed outside of it Calvin says life is a labyrinth it's a maze and it's better to limp along the path of scripture than to dash with all speed outside of it that's a word that we should hear the sorrows of those who are after another God shall multiply. And then there's resolve. Point two is resolve. I will not take their name upon my lips. I won't pour out their offerings of blood. And then verses six through five through six, excuse me, are the wave of allurement. The Lord God is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And then verse six listen. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What a great statement. So I'm gonna combine those two and talk about how, how to deal with sin. And I'm gonna give you an acrostic. I remember things by doing acrostic. I just wanna do something different this morning. And the acrostic is Ohio. So four things. How do you deal with this passage and walking under putting sin to death. So four points. Number one is, I must be overwhelmed by wonder and amazement at the beauty and goodness of Christ. I must treasure Christ. I must be overwhelmed by the goodness and mercy of Christ. In Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. In John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, John says this. He says, For for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law of Moses prepared our hearts to receive the cross. It showed us our sin, and it led us to the sacrificial system that was fulfilled in Jesus Or or we think of Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, says this regarding Christ. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Verse 6, and between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I read that because in Christ we have the fullness of power and meekness, glory and self-humiliation, he is the lion and the lamb. So I must be overwhelmed with the greatness and the mercy and the majesty of Christ. So there's a book by a guy named David Murray called uh, The Happy Christian. It's a wonderful book. I strongly recommend it. And it says in that book that that pastors and teachers and parents, uh, we have a tendency to spend way too much time. Here's a some preachers, teachers, and parents love to dwell in the smoke and fire of Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given, more than the love and grace of Mount Calvary. And I, I read that and I thought, if, if I am going to hate sin, I must be someone who glories primarily in Jesus. I've got to stand at the cross and see the forgiveness of my sin. I've got to be someone who, who doesn't dwell in the consequences of living out of Mount Sinai. Which I need to understand that. But that was, prepar- that was a, a preparatory school to show us the glory of the cross. Romans 3, verse 20. No one would be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become aware of our sin and the need of a Savior. So, glory in Jesus. If I do to put sin to death, I've got to glory in Jesus. And find that, there, that I treasure Christ. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. H, I must hate sin. I must hate sin. Sin destroys. Sin is a horrible master. Sin overwhelms. I, there's a little point I quoted frequently. Vice is a monster of such frightful mean as to be hated, yet ne- needs to be seen, yet seen too often. We grow accustomed to its face. First we endure, then we pity, and then we embrace. We live, brothers and sisters, in a culture that does not hate, disdain those things that defy the character and the standards of God. Uh, we don't. Uh, just You'll see a movie and you're watching, you're enjoying it, all of a sudden they'll bring in a theme or something that just destroys the beauty of the biblical foundation for living. Example, I went to a website this week of a well-known magazine and just clicked on the article headings, I only read one article, but but every article in this well-known magazine, you can pick up in any grocery store in America, even with the print media down, this still magazine is still going strong. Every article almost every article, was a broadside at the beauty of the biblical concept of sexual love. The, the, the Bible says that sex is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift for marriage between a man and a woman to be fully enjoyed and embraced. And it leads to flourishing, and by God's grace, it leads to children, and it leads to content and happiness and, and, and a continuity from generation to generation. But, but, but this magazine is all about pansexuality and this and that and so forth and so on and it just it mocks the biblical standard and that's the water we drink that's the air we breathe and we've got to be overwhelmed with the goodness of Christ and in turn we've got to say I want to stay away from those things which take away my happiness and my wholeness and my flourishing it's like we're standing at the, at the crossroads where right? are we going to go the way of Godly Jehoshaphat or his ungodly son that, that, that's, that's That's an ongoing ongoing decision the man named William Gurnall. Died in 1674. He wrote a big book. It's a good book called The Christian Complete Armor based on Ephesians 6. And William Gurnall says that, that uh, regarding hating sin, he said, I, I have friends who will be in their house at night, maybe falling to sleep, and they'll hear a noise in the other room or a pot would fall from the wall, and they'll think maybe there's a demon in the house, and they get up and they run from the house in horror. He says, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. But he said, what happens when you're in an ungodly conversation? And the prince of darkness is in that conversation. Do you run from that? What happens when you have lustful thoughts? Do you run from that? Do you stay away from that? What happens when you're involved in, in a, a jealous tirade or a, a covetous spirit? Do you run from that? And I am just I see that and I say, help us to hate sin. Help, help us to be people who say, I, I'm, I, I am not going to go there. There's no gospel hymn that says... I am resolved no longer to linger charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. See, these have allured my sight. Unless I am captured by the beauty and majesty of Jesus and the glory of sins forgiven by the blood of the cross... I will not hate sin. I may may be dragged to a place of obedience by well-meaning people. I, I may go there kicking and screaming, but I will not run from sin because there's an infinitely greater, higher, and more glorious thing awaiting me than these trivialities. And that's true whether you're 18 or 48 or 68. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight, the way of allurement. I I must be ignited by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so part of putting sin to death is I cry out, Come, Holy Spirit, anoint me, fuel me, teach me. Open your word to me. And then, oh, I must order my life under the clear teaching of Scripture. Order my life. I, I just... I want to see us flourish to give us a platform to preach Jesus. I want to see our homes filled with laughter and joy. I want to see our marriages growing. I want to see relationships strong. And if that's going to happen, we're going to be constantly reforming by the Word of God. Nobody's ever done with sin. But the good news is that we have a power that lets us walk with authority as we run to Jesus. We need to order our life under the Scripture. I often think of how Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount. It's an incredible illustration. He says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Everyone who, who, who comes to me and hears my words and builds his life on those words is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, but the house stood strong because it was founded on the rock. See? But there's another group. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice will be like a foolish man who built his house... On the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. When I think about this passage, it's very interesting that I think. Our Lord is underscoring the fact that we, are, we live in a less than perfect world. He, he didn't say if rains come or if winds blow or if the streams win." He said, when? But he says this, if you build your life on the destiny of Jesus and his word, it will stand. It will stand. So, so we walk with an overwhelming gratitude of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus as we treasure him we hate sin we run from it we are ignited by the Holy Spirit and we order our life under the scripture we take the word we order our life and stand strong we're going to close with a song that says in part I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation foundation I will put my trust in you alone, Jesus, and I will not be shaken so let's let's pray lord I, I do pray that you would teach us to build our lives upon the reality and the love and the goodness of Christ. I pray that these seniors um, would would be overwhelmed by the goodness and the mercy of the triune God who has no beginning and who has no end who in the fullness of time became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and that the Holy Spirit of the living God has been poured out upon us that you are Father Son and Holy Spirit that you've given us the word you've given us a place to stand in a world that says there's no place to stand and so we're not pushed back and forth, but we, 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 we're people of resolve. So, Lord, teach us all what it means to be overwhelmed by the greatness of Christ. And, Lord, because we're overwhelmed, may we run from those things that, that, which dishonor you. And, Lord, ignite us by the power that you bring, Holy Spirit, to exalt Jesus and to open the Word. And as you do that, may we order our lives before you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that as we talk to older folks, that time after time, as they've walked with Jesus, they can say, Psalm sixteen six. the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Thank you that you've done that, Lord. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're good. Show us your goodness by the cross. Show us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.